Boop, 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 boop. You can't absorb these kind of losses. War isn't a game where you get to reboot and start over. That can't happen, understand? Yes, sir. Do you? Because I've trained others. Each one ultimately a failure. All right, Colonel. He understands. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Style Guide with Dave Morris and Stephen Ray Orr. How are you doing today, Stephen? Oh, I'm doing great. Today's a wonderful day. It is, and we are back to talk more about Ender's Game and the Ender's series, because last time I don't feel like we covered uh, a lot of the really, really good topics. No, we only covered a few of the really, really good topics. Yeah, and I think it's it's blaringly obvious some of the things we just missed and forgot to talk about. So we're going to try and cover those now, because I love talking about the Ender's Game series. <laughs> I like I like that last week I talked about how uh, Orson Scott Card writes sequel bait books, and uh, we had a sequel bait podcast. Very we fun. totally did, didn't we? <laughs> We couldn't not finish. We couldn't we, not finish. We couldn't not. Okay, so if if we're talking about some of the great things that we missed, what are you thinking about? I think we we really should have talked more about the Descalada uh, as a as a concept because it is so important to the story of those last three novels. Like so important. It, it is. It is the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is the bad guy for those last three novels, and we kind of almost overlooked it. We just like. Oh, yeah, you know the Descalada. Blah, blah, blah. Helps the piggies, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Again, one of the problems that we run into with this is that the the levels of knowledge required in some of our podcasts are... You, you could you could enter in and come in just fine, but with this science fiction series, Descalada, Piggies, Royal Mother of the West, some of it sounds uh, crazy. Yeah, this is really just for fans of Ender's Game. <laughs> we should put a disclaimer. Uh, if you haven't read the series or don't like it, don't listen to this podcast. And if you enjoyed the movie, don't listen to this podcast. Okay, so the Descalada. The Descalada. The ungluer is what I think it is, how it translates into, right? It unglues people. It is tied directly to this to the family that we follow, the closest on uh, Lusitiania, uh, which is Novena's family, because Novena's parents were the ones that found the cure for it. And there was the huge plague that that tore the town apart, literally and figuratively. Um, and then as the series goes on, it just gets bigger and badder and it's getting smarter and they're figuring out that it's intelligent. And then in the end, we find out that it was created by this other total other alien race. And and one of the one of the questions that they struggle with in the novel is whether or not it is sentient. Whether yes. it's, it is simply so alien that that we can't understand it, but there is there is a sentience within it that, uh, and part of this has to do, right, of course, with the the relationship that Ender has to the buggers, where his realization that they were actually super intelligent and trying to communicate and failing, um, he's worried about replicating that same mistake with this completely different sort of. Uh, creature the the descalata yeah and it's uh it is neat because this time uh unlike the first time with the buggers this time they have uh demosthenes demosthenes uh hierarchy of foreignness so the conversation constantly comes back to it doesn't matter if they're sentient what matters is if they're ramen or varels are we able to communicate with them and make peace or 
Can we not communicate them? In which case, one of us is going to kill the other. In which case, let us win. Um, and so that seems to be what the big debate is about. And uh, um, what I like is that Quora is at the center of it. Uh, because what? this is... Oh, sorry? No, no, no. I was going to say, why is that? Oh, so it's... Uh, like she's at the center of it because she's the one who's been studying the language and she's not telling anyone because they cut her off, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think makes it so great is that when you look at all of the all of Navina's children when they were young and the people they grew up to be, uh, Quim, who was the young, arrogant Christian, grew up to be a you know, a, a martyr. Um, Ella, who was like the, you know, firm and controlling uh, woman ended up being a you know a lonely cold scientist. Uh, Grego, the young messed up boy, became the one who started the riots and and attack and led to slaughter. And Cora, who was the silent one who never felt like she could speak, is now the one defending the Descalada who she thinks is trying to speak. Right. Okay, I see what you're saying. See what I mean? Isn't that kind of nice? Like, like, and that is that's part of where Orson Scott Card's storytelling I really love that it's it's very it just fits so nicely together when you look at it from a from the the metaphor or the uh, the the comparisons and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's something that he he actually replicates um, throughout all of his children in in kind of an unusual way where um, they they become. When they become adults, they are the reverse of what they were as children. And and you see this with everyone from the main characters to the secondary and tertiary characters. But, I mean, of course, the best example is Ender the Destroyer, who becomes Ender the Protector and Creator. But yeah. Peter as well. I think the only one that we don't really see that is Valentine. Valentine. Yes. Well, she, uh, I think, where her her growth is that she was originally given a, a character and a persona by her brother, Peter, and she was kind of just writing what he wanted her to write and playing this role that she didn't believe in. And now that is what she does. And she really believes it. And she uses it for her own purposes. You know, like she has become Demosthenes, Demosthenes and how, and her, her essays are, are, uh, like the most read literary papers in the entire galaxy, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can. You I know, can see that. Yeah. Maybe. 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 Um, no, 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 that makes sense to me. Yeah, but the other thing with the Descalada is that they do discover at the very end of the series this whole other alien race. Well, uh, the Descaladors or whatever they call them. Yeah, because the the implication throughout the series is that. Uh, it, the Descalada itself is the intelligent race that they are interacting with. And then by the end of it, what they realize is that it's not the Descalada that is the species, but it is this other race that created it. Yeah. And, and why this is significant is, I think, in a way, this parallels the, um, the creation of Jane. So just as humans created Jane perhaps inadvertently, but still were responsible for the creation of, there is this relationship to the Descalada that we don't know the details of and will maybe never know the details of, but there is a relationship of creator to this, this new species that is doing something either on its own or by design. Like that, that's one of the, one of the struggles that I have with it is that there are so many, uh, so many questions around the Descalada. Mm -hmm. 
and the intent of it and and what they wanted to get out of it and whether it was a weapon or whether it was a terraforming tool or 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 yeah there's so many questions about the the descalada i think which i think is what you were saying but i think it is it's more like the way i see it and what i think it is is that the descaladors this other alien race sends out these viruses to communicate with people like that's how they speak to each other and they sent out this one as a uh as a terraforming project and it's a thing that's meant to go to a planet make it ready for them to come to it and then when they come to it they release the other thing that turns it off and then they can take over the planet and make it theirs again uh which is the sort of the explanation they kind of give in the book but it's never confirmed is just what is suspected uh but i do like that idea i think that is like a nice like and it is how uh, the humans met the buggers too, as the buggers sent out a colony ship, and so this is sort of their version of that colony ship. And these viruses are there to colonize the planet. Yeah, yeah. Although I think the the reason that I uh, I question that is because of the tidiness of it, right? Because it it it's a direct parallel to what we know of the humans and what we know of the buggers, um, as opposed to uh, a more uh, more nuanced sort of exploration of what they could be as in maybe maybe they weren't in as intentional as was thought mm. which is why I which is why I bring up Jane just because the the accidents that bring her into existence uh, couldn't have been foreseen and the the end result of her ability to uh, to cut off all uh, communications around around the universe, uh, that result from her existence couldn't have been foreseen uh, ahead of time. And so I guess unforeseen consequences is just on my mind when I think about the Descolada. Ah, nice. Okay, I see what you're, you're going. You you, you want to think, like, you, you, it's when you're thinking of the Descolada, it's nicer to think of it as an unforeseen consequence, like what happened with it and how it terraformed the planet and did all that to it, and that there may have been another motive for doing it. Similar to the Hive Queen was trying to reach into Ender's mind, and that's what created Jane. Yeah, yeah, because I think one of the one of the things we saw with the the buggers and and even the piggies as well is, despite their alien qualities, they're very human in their desire to kind of colonize. Right, the mm -hmm. the piggies really they they want to be colonizers of 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 the universe as well but the buggers were doing the same thing and i like the idea of an alien race that is so alien that it doesn't replicate the kinds of mistakes that we make it wasn't trying to colonize the stars yeah and maybe the descalata was it's uh it's sending out a message to try and find other life form just to talk to them <laughs> you know yeah um that's that's neat or maybe even, or maybe even the Descalada is the Descaladors, and it just hasn't had time to take over the planet enough to become a species. Right, like maybe it, maybe it's a longer term project, or uh, what we're witnessing is the creation of life in a way that d isn't understood. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this brings me to one of the things I love about science fiction novels in, in the first place. And not just science fiction movies, but specifically novels is that it opens up these really uh, ethical, moral questions and explores them in depth. You know, like um, like the first chapter of Xenocide, I think it is, when Valentine, Valentine and Miro are talking on the starship 
for maybe it's not the first chapter, it's like the second or third chapter. And they're talking about like the idea of a phylote and like the smallest possible atom and holding things together. And and then Jane Miro, like Miro is a holographic image, which is actually Jane is talking and stuff. And like that whole scene happens. And they get into like really nitty gritty philosophical and scientific discussions about the nature of life in the universe. Uh, and you wouldn't get that in a movie. You would get like a couple lines of that conversation. And so with the Descaladadors, the Descaladors, when they find the planet and they send at them the, uh, the viruses to communicate through viruses or through like molecules. And Jane is like explaining that, oh, this is, it looks like this is what they're sending. It's a molecule. And what it will do is make us feel really like sleepy and happy. And then they spend a bunch of time discussing like, what does that mean? Are they, does that mean they're good? Does that mean they're bad? Are they, how do they communicate? Do they only throw bricks and give people sandwiches? Like what, what happens? Uh, and I love that aspect of it. And I love that the Descalada allowed, opened up discussion of that whole idea of like, wow, imagine communicating with chemicals and stuff. That's kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right to point to that being one of the core attributes of the science fiction genre is is that philosophical outlook that that causes us either to to question something uh, about the world we live in today or something about the nature of ourselves as human beings and our relationship to the world around us. And you don't you don't see that same sort of exploration in fantasy uh, or or most other sorts of uh, not pop literature, but but a lot of literature avoids that that style of of exploration, partially because it it's hard to get away with it when you're when you're talking about human beings. But there's something about these variety of aliens that that gives us the opportunity to look inward at ourselves and see what's alien in ourselves. Mm, yeah. And and you're right. There are very few instances of television or uh, movies that are able to explore these same sort of concepts. Uh, and even when they do, they they often do a very surface level exploration. Just because of, I mean, time is one one factor, but also audience interest is another. Yeah, like it's boring to watch two people talk in depth about about the the nature of life. But it is really exciting to read it when Valentine is also trying to figure out how this computer program is working. You know, like it's this wonderful, wonderful chapter. Uh, and you're you're just getting introduced to the novel and that's what they're talking about. It's fantastic. Which I think points to one of the difficulties of transforming the Enders series into cinema is that it is precisely so rooted in those sorts of scenes and and conversations and sometimes internal dialogues mm -hmm. that you i mean translating that directly onto a screen isn't going to work no a lot of like what makes ender's game so great is what ender is thinking about everything and what he thinks it means you yeah know? and yeah. it's and we don't get that in a movie I, although i will confess i did not watch the ender's game movie and i have no intention of ever watching it it it's it's very bad it's, it's it's very bad. Yeah, that's that's all I've heard, and I don't want to watch it because I like the movie. I like the book. I mean, I like the book so much. One of the things is that I mean, child actors are very difficult to. Uh, well, a lot of them aren't actors, right? They're they're playing themselves, and and it's very evident. But 
the, the, the big problem with Ender's Game is that you need a bunch of child actors. Like, it, I, could, I could believe you could find one kid who could play Ender really well, but to find all these other kids who are going to surround him, I mean, ugh, I, I can't imagine it. Although, now that I think of it, maybe maybe the Enderverse is better suited to kind of like a Game of Thrones uh, television series, like 10 episodes per book or something like that. Maybe. I think it would actually, Ender's Game would play better as an animated uh, feature. Because uh, then you could make the kids look like kids and you could have them flying around really cool. Like That's how I would do it if I were to do it. I would make it an animated series. That's a good way to do it. Okay, so back to what we were talking about with... Uh, the Descalada. Right. And moving away from the Descalada into the other thing we didn't really spend a lot of time on last time uh, was the nature of Jane and what Jane could possibly mean in, in the universe for real and in Ender's universe. Yeah, yeah, because Jane is is one of the more beautiful characters that uh, you could not possibly predict from the first book, but by the end of it, she she certainly becomes uh, a character that we we love and want to want to follow yeah and apparently uh i didn't know this but in i think the forward for speaker for the dead uh orson scott card talks about the fact that he had no intention of jane being such a powerful character he just had no no idea that she was going to be like another alien race cuz he just needed a way for ender to know things right he right. just cuz ender was go on his own on this planet looking for things and he needed to have a way of like asking for information from something um and basically like so that he's not just monologuing the whole time <laughs> and so jane was created for that exact purpose and then as he wrote her and wrote her she became more and more of a character and more and more of a uh, of a species you know like an alien uh which i think is so great and when you read the speaker for the dead you can see that that's what he kind of meant uh, if you reread it with that in mind, because she's really not in much of the book. Yeah. You know, like in Speaker, she's there at the beginning, of course, when he first hears about the piggies and she she convinces him to go. And then she's there when he first arrives and then he turns her off and then she's offended and she doesn't come back to like the end of the book. Oh, and the the scene where the first scene we see from her perspective uh, in that book after he's shut her off. And she and it she uh, it, it talks about how she had decided that she was going to forgive Ender because he didn't know what he was doing, and all of that happened in the period of about three seconds, and then she realizes that it's not as simple as just saying she's going to forgive him because she's still angry about it, and it's this beautiful uh, realization of emotion in her. Yeah. That that I. I'm I'm surprised that Jane wasn't originally uh, imagined as a character. But at the same time, that kind of matches with Orson Scott Card's writing style, where he will write the story as it is and just throw in the ideas and not, and as they come to him, build them and not worry so much about uh, uh, how they fit together or, or whether or not it fits really well with what happened in the past. And you see... I mean, it uh, in the Ender's Shadow series, lots of the the book is dedicated to rewriting uh, the scientific inaccuracies or the the logical inaccuracies of Ender's game mm-hmm. that he just didn't care about because he was just writing the story as it came to him. 
but then over the years, you know, he he learned different things uh, about gravity or the different things about the way that um, battle school would have to operate. And so changes had to be made. And so he made them in the later books. Yeah. Which which I think is kind of how how I, I see Jane, right, as this character that was originally, you know, a Siri or or just a Google search and and builds throughout uh, by the end of the novel into a character. Yeah, totally. And the the fact that like she had to get mad at him and speaker and stop talking to him because otherwise he had too much power with Jane on his side. Uh, she's just so powerful. The fact that she can control every computer and disrupt Angela's signals and knows everything there is to know about anything. To have him use Jane for the whole like speaker story of him trying to like uncover these clues and piece things together and go like all that, it would have been too easy for him. And so I think yeah. I think it was great that that he switches her off when he gets really emotional with the Philos de Mente Cristo, you know, and that earns their trust. And then he learns all this new information and Jane isn't already doing it all. And then he has to actually figure things out on his own. It's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to forward that story and forward that action. Well, and I think one of the, the reasons that he he shuts her off as well is the fact that there was no tension in the plot uh, up up to that point. Right. It's it's not until the moment where Jane basically tells the universe, oh, look, the piggies, uh, someone has broken the rules with the piggies that they they send the fleet towards Lusitania. Yeah, exactly. She's the one that does that. Yeah. And so so none of that would have happened if Jane and Ender like how's how do you how do you make that happen in a way that that makes sense? Because the whole idea is that it's going to take a long, a long time to discover, because the nature of satellites. Yeah. That, well, and and that's where we get into this weird, weird position where the technology in the book and the technology now are hard to reconcile. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but you can forgive some of that. Like I don't know. Oh, of course, yeah. It's it's science fiction, so you forgive it. But at the same time, like the we're we're in a world where it's we're plastered with satellites, and satellite imagery is relatively um, not instantaneous for for all of them, but relatively easy to access. Yeah, it's accessible to the anyone with a smartphone. Well, and and that's the thing, right? And so the, the, there are lots of things that the story would be very different written today or conceived today. Uh, but when when he's writing, having Jane just tell everyone, look at what uh, look at what they've done with the piggies, that that's a good way to set the plot in motion. Yeah, and I think it is. It's her noticing it and pointing it out to people because they aren't really looking at the satellite images of Lusitania. They don't really care. Uh, they're studying because that they think they think he almost he justifies it saying that the xenobiologists don't care about Lusitania. Because they are studying the own ecosystem on their own planet, which is already awesome and so full of everything. So they aren't really looking to see what's happening with the landscape and the the geology of Lusitania. Uh, whereas the Xeno Xenologers, is that what it is? Yeah. Are really interested because there's only one alien species in the world. So it, it it's it's kind of justified that no one no. noticed without Jane pointing it out. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, and I, I I don't object to them not particularly noticing, right? Because the idea is that there are is, is it a hundred worlds? Mm -hmm. They say there there are a hundred worlds, and and everyone's focused on their own problems and their own 
their own factors and it's not really that interesting you know what's happening to the forests on a on a particular planet even if that those forests are filled with uh piggies yeah. because you know most of what you get from the piggies is uh is this second hand third hand information anyway so so i forgive it but it just it it's interesting the way that this ghost in the machine character um is the one that set uh, drives the plot in the, in that first book or in that second book? Yeah, it's great. And then in the third book as well, uh, the it, she's uh, she's more crucial of a character because it is about her death and they're being she's being attacked, right? And if they lose Jane, they lose their connection to the rest of the world. They lose the uh, ability to move faster than light. They lose. They lose her ability to do all the computations and all that sort of stuff that they need her for. And so it's the battle between like Queen Zhao and Jane, right? That wonderful chapter where Queen Zhao's figured it out and is telling her father. And then Jane appears as the Han Feitzu from like the past, like the old original Han Feitzu, his ancestor of the heart. And so Jane is super in the thick of Xenocide's plot. And then Children of the Mind, she's like the puppet master. You know, she's like doing all these. She she knows exactly what she's doing, and it and uh, everyone's just sort of doing her bidding almost. And if you think about her origin as the uh, the giants drink game in in Ender's Game, and and how uh, she was you know a psychology AI essentially at yeah. the time, it is it is not inconceivable that the trajectory goes the way it goes, but it's still rather fascinating to watch and even she you know goes through that same transformation where she is a child who doesn't really experience emotions and doesn't really understand what it's like to care about someone or be angry at someone or or that to finally giving up her own life willing to sacrifice herself yeah. for for something else and it's it's a good uh, it's a good transformation for her. Yeah, and Si Wang Mu does that has that wonderful sort of monologue when she's falling asleep about what is a god, and that Jane might be a god because she is goodness and she has the power to do it, you know, uh, but is willing to do what is right, even though at, at great cost to herself and stuff. Uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, and then she ends up getting a body. She ends up taking young Val. <laughs> <laughs> and marrying Miro. Yeah. But but it's it's funny, right? Because uh, again, everything that Jane is, she learns from Ender, right? Like that that goodness is is Ender's entirely. Ender's goodness and that ability to manipulate things is Ender's ability to manipulate things. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's um, and so so there's a lot of ways that Jane is Ender's child. Yeah, and that's how she views herself, I think, and how they talk about it. Like when Navina is jealous of this woman that lives in Ender's head and uh, how Jane is like, I wish she could think of me not as a, you know, a, a lover or a mistress, but as a daughter, as a child. And it's it's kind of beautiful that Jane is the most powerful being in the universe. And yet is the daughter of two, like it's, she's sort of the first daughter of a cross species uh, mating, <laughs> like, uh, cause it's the hive queen reaching for Ender and Ender reaching for the hive queen that gave birth to Jane when they had to create the bridge between the two of them, something that was like them, but like him and like him, but like them. 
and Jane was what came into existence is kind of this beautiful little Jane is a uh, part of, and then, and then now at the end of the novels, she is uh, her ayu. How do you say it? I just say aura. Oh yeah, that's right. Her aura, uh, which is definitely her not what soul. it is. Her ayu <laughs> is going through the net of mother trees and father trees on Lusitania. So she is now part hive queen, part human, and part pecuninio. And so she is like the the perfect unity of all the different species we know of. Which is particularly important because the second book is entirely predicated on the failure to to achieve that, right? Both Lebo and Pippo, Pippo uh, couldn't become trees because it that that sort of cross species bridge was wasn't possible for them. Mm-hmm. It's it's only Jane, and so. That's, uh, again, another interesting sort of, uh, I, I mean, it's hard to say whether, whether that's, uh, whether he's trying to draw that parallel, but it is an interesting parallel. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Okay. So we've caught up on Jane and we've caught up on the Descalata. <laughs> what was the other thing you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about enough in the last episode? <laughs> well, uh, one of, one of the things that I think, uh, we should talk about a little bit is the the net and, and in talking about it we should talk about Locke and 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 uh, Demonson uh-huh. and Demon. You mean the nets? The nets, yes. Yes, and how Orson Scott Card was pretty close but totally wrong as to how the internet was going to work. Yeah, he's if he's writing in the late '80s or even the mid '80s, I mean he's he's not predicting anything. He's He's looking at technology around him, and that's kind of the state of uh, of communications, I think. Well, he kind of projects forward into this idea of different networks uh, on the nets, like different forums that you need to have your... And like how everyone has... A, you need like a citizen ID to get on the net, and you have to log in and be known, as opposed to today where it's still mostly anonymous if you want it to be. Yeah, his is closer to the Facebook real name policy. Yeah, like if Facebook was the whole internet, that's closer to what he is, where you, you log in with your own name and then you can join different groups, but you have to have permission and be asked to join some of them and other ones anyone can just join. And like, um, So he's kind of projected into that sort of future where it's actually being regulated by the government and, and well, I guess almost regulated by the computer itself, but regulated by the government as to how you access the nets, which is not accurate yet. Yet, who knows? Maybe in ten years it will be. No, but I think it is a it, it is a a mature idea of the internet. But it's also one that basically takes the real world and just says, "Yeah, but what if we could communicate faster?" Like that's <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the way his nets work. There's there's nothing particularly novel about his nets. Well, he did do a good job of projecting into this idea that like everything's the net now. In his, but no, there's no like television anymore or radio. It's just, oh no, he just watches the nets and on the nets, he finds his news and he finds his politics and he finds his weather and he finds everything uh, just through the network because it, that's what it's going to go. Everything's just going to become one cord going into your house, not a whole bunch. At the same time, what, what he then does is he, so he sets up this world and he, and he says only citizens can, can get on there and it's going to be this this civilized sort of place, although he does, I think, predict terrible internet message boards as well. Um, but 
and then he says, I'm, I'm just going to now choose to let two, two young children get on there and, and pretend to be real people. Yeah, and he does that. That is the thing I was just thinking is that you do create your own usernames and stuff. So people can create their own network identities. It's just with student access, they couldn't get into certain forms. So they needed citizens access, which is why they used their father's access to get into those special forums and stuff like that. But you can still sign in with different names and stuff, which is kind of weird now that I think about it. <laughs> that he did do the whole, you have to use your real name, but then at the same time, nope, you don't. You just have to use your, you, but it does mean they are traceable. Yeah. Which is how they get traced, right? Yeah, except the implication is that they're traced because of the, um, the the in, the military police's power is the implication, as opposed to how it would seem to be pretty easy to check whose identities were connected to what online personalities, right? That is true. Yeah, like if it's all rooted in, and I think eventually they they get their own. They do get their own access. lock and Demosthenes logins. Yeah, and which keep again, them anonymous. So, yeah, so, but did they become citizens then? No, they got the they because I think the way it was set up was that their these companies paid them in network time uh, for their pseudonyms so that they wouldn't have to because they they value their secrecy or privacy or whatever, and so uh, and so that's how they log in. But how are they logging in with their own student ID? Or are they logging in with under like lock? See, and and that that's the thing, and and I mean again, most of this is unimportant. The idea is we've got a couple of kids who are pretending to uh, be not kids and and sharing mm -hmm. important ideas, but and I think it, it is. I'm going to say it is where he doesn't explain it to the point that it's wrong. You know, he explains it to the point that he needs to explain it for the novel, and then allows you to figure out how that makes any sense. <laughs> and I can think of ways that it makes sense. Uh, uh, but if I do try to think about what he told me, uh, I can also see how it doesn't make sense. So I think he'd left it unexplained just enough that it works. Yeah, because it's, it's not, he's not really interested in the sciencey aspects of the science fiction parts. Yeah. Like it's, and if he tried know. to explain, or if he ever explained at one point how you log into the nets, <laughs> then this whole thing would fall apart. You know, because then you'd have to type in your, your ID and your real name. And then it's like, oh, well, then how do they get on with Locke? But he never explained it. So maybe you don't have to sign in to get on the Internet. You just need to sign in to get into a forum or something. Or to access highly, like, political forums, you have to be signed in with your real name. <laughs> you know? He didn't quite get into it enough to make it yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think part of it, too, is that, I mean, I I don't get as bothered these days by when I'm watching something and going, oh, Oh, that's that's clearly you know that's that's a mistake, you know that just that just doesn't make any sense, and and I guess the the best example would be something like Back to the Future, where the time travel in Back to the Future gets stupid. Like, yeah. What What do you mean his hand starts disappearing? <laughs> he starts to like, not exist. <laughs> but just the hand? No, all. What of about them. the what, what about the blood that's flowing to the hand? All of it. But like, <laughs> I know what you mean. That yeah. the that that makes sense from a storytelling perspective. Yeah, but it doesn't and, make sense when they try to do the real science of it, or if you think about it in a scientific way, it just does not make sense. Yeah, and and I'm okay with not because parts of parts of the the novels that we're exploring 
can't happen, or can't happen insofar as we know the world to be. Like, faster than light travel isn't possible. Like, it's just, it's something that pretty much right now our science says can't happen. Well, that's that's inside thinking. Uh, when you're outside, every point is the same point. <laughs> yeah, and there's so many things like with that you have to just take for granted in in a lot of it. Like, well, like, like the how, transporter. How in the heck did the humans beat the buggers in the first place? The buggers are just way better, way, way, way better. Like we just got a fluke, like lucked out in that first time. Uh, and, like, not even Mazer Rackham's battle, but the one before when they first sent a ship, you know, like, like they were, the, the, they reference it as, like, the, the the scourging of Asia, what do they call it? The, yeah, no, I think that's right. Where they, where Asia gets, like, attacked and totally firebombed and stuff, and it's like, how would, how does the human race survive that first attack? I don't understand. Uh, as soon as you start thinking about it, it's like, man, we would have lost, but they, but he doesn't explain it enough. Well, so that's why he wrote create. the prequel books. He wrote uh, a series that's based in the first Bugger War. <laughs> great. All the joy of Ender's Game without any of the stuff that makes Ender's Game Ender's Game. Yeah, but that is this is a neat sort of like a beeline plot in the uh, in Ender's Game. The whole idea of Detlock and Demosthenes on the nets. Yeah, and you said last week uh, that when you're rereading them, if you're skipping chapters, those are the ones that that people will skip. Well, that first one where where Valentine and Peter talk in the woods about starting the identities, you kind of could flip through that part. You yeah, know, you know what happens. They end up starting it. Okay, good. Blah 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 blah. And Valentine is acting like Peter's controlling her, but she's really controlling him. And maybe Peter's a nice guy. Blah 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 blah. Okay, good. Next chapter, <laughs> uh, and you don't miss too much. Uh, the later ones you do need to, you, you would want to read, because it's the rest of the Locke Demosthene story is told through Valentine. Uh, when Graf is coming to talk to her and she's worried about it and, and like we hear from her perspective is what she's thinking about doing. We never hear anything from Peter's perspective. No, no. But but this is this is part of it too, is those stories are, I mean, I would, if they weren't in the book, Pretty much most of the book would still make sense and probably be just about as powerful, right? It's not as if Ender's character is constantly in communication and or or is drawing upon the events of the the Valentine Peter story. It's it's not as I mean we we see it in the the letter that she is forced yeah. to write for him, and we see it when she comes to uh, the lake. And and those are I think important moments for Ender's story, but we, you you don't even necessarily need to know what's going on with her and Peter for those moments to still be powerful. Yeah, and you know I th I think it is um, I think it, as a beeline it, why it works so perfectly is that it does carry a large part of the theme of the story, of the whole uh, sometimes uh, lies are more dependable than truth. Exactly. And that they're living these lies that are like having more effect on the world than truth. And uh, both of them are doing the opposite of the kind of person they actually are, you know, and like uh, and so it's it's this it does carry that theme. And every time it dips into Ender's story, it kind of it has a large effect and impact on him. Uh, which as it should. And then at the very end, it comes together in that lovely, you know, that moment of Valentine up on the space station to meet him as they're about to go off on a colony ship together. 
and uh, and they go off together into space. And uh, as she spent, you know, the last first part of her life with the brother she hated, and she wants to spend the rest of it with the brother she loved, you know. And so, like, it it does have this nice like reason for existing. But once you've read it once, you could just skip it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean that. Yeah, I'm going back to that. Once you've read it once, you could just skip it the next time, and you'd be fine. Yeah, but I think I think that's where, I mean, Ender's character suffers through the through the book, but I wouldn't say that he really experiences uh, a dramatic shift. Would I? Uh, yeah, he does. I mean, a, a, sh- a dramatic shift when when Valentine and re-enters his life in those well, moments. Well, well, but I mean, he the, it's a it's a return to the equilibrium of the character, right? Like it's it's almost as if you know he becomes he goes off track and then and then she just pushes him and he's right he's he's headed in the right direction again and and that happens twice there. But yeah. sorry, what I'm well, trying it's, it's, what I'm trying to say. Oh, go go. Well, I'm trying to it. it What's interesting is that the most growing up that we see in that first book comes from Valentine and Peter, where where Valentine has to fake being someone that she's not, and in doing so, becomes somebody else. She becomes a part of the person that she's faking. And we see the same thing with Peter. He has to fake being a good, reasonable, um, um, almost... Uh, yeah. A good person. Yeah, and, and and becomes a better person than he was as a result. Whereas Ender, I'm not sure he experiences that same sort of growth. Yeah, I think the, the where, where I would say he does is when... Because every time Valentine comes into his life, he's depressed. Yeah. Uh, and it's like he's trapped at the giant's drink and he just wants it to end. And he's, you know, just like they think he's suicidal or something. But then he gets Valentine's letter and then he finds a way to to bust through the giant's eye and get to the end of the world, which never one's ever done before. Um, and then the time at the beach too, it's like he's given up and he just doesn't want to do it anymore. And he's just sitting on the water and he's not going to do anything. And so he's just depressed, but then she shows up and he remembers why he, what he's fighting for. And he does it all the rest of the book he does for Valentine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't so much change his character but it takes him out of like he he just sinks into these low points and it brings him back out of it. So the change happened before Valentine interacted with him and Valentine interacted with him to bring him back. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, the story itself changes Ender, not Valentine. No, no, you're right. You're right. Okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah, but I, I do see what you mean about how like it's the as far as the growing up goes, he doesn't do much growing up. He's always an incredibly smart, brilliant commander. And part of that's the weirdness of battle school is, I think, I mean, it's um, one of the things that he's trying to uh, get across in the writing is the difficulty and the isolation. And, um, and, and so the writing for Ender feels very isolated and it feels very um, introspective. And, and so uh, I think there, that's part of, I mean, there, there, I mean, this, this might not make any sense, but in reading that book, all the parts that are Ender parts, they they have a a feeling of darkness, and I I mean an actual darkness. Like they, I I imagine the rooms that he's in are darker, and even though you know it's on a space station and probably has just fine lighting, and then the parts with Valentine and Peter, 
I imagine almost all of them in these open spaces in sunlight and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I think that that's a, a fact of the writing, not just my, my imagination, but it might just be, you know. No, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, I definitely picture Valentine and Peter's stuff very bright and in like Greenboro, like it's called Greenboro. Uh, so you think of green and trees and they moved there so that Peter could be in the outdoors. So you're thinking of outdoors and everything every time you read about them and how beautiful and, and light and summery it all is. And that, and when Graf is walking with Valentine around the field, I'm picturing how beautiful it is. So like, yeah, I see what you mean. I see totally, I totally see what you mean. And I think that is his intention. Yeah. Because Ender is supposed to be isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of battle school. Uh, we Speaking of battle school. We didn't talk too much about how cool battle school is as a concept <laughs> and how that how how well that world slowly comes into being uh, as you get introduced to it and how perfectly you slowly move up and you start understanding that, like, you know, the launchies and how they're treated with contempt and then they, they get into an army and then you work your way up to a tune leader and then a, a commander if you're lucky and then you get sent off to your other school. Uh, and like the slang of the boys and stuff like that, like uh, the games room where you go and play games. Like like I can imagine what going to battle school would be like. And I, I think he does such a good job of creating that world. Well, and I mean... Do you disagree? No, no, I, I don't disagree at all. I I have... So I, again, I was, I was younger when I read Ender's Game than you were. And part of part of what appealed to me was that it spoke somewhat to how I conceived of school. Like there, there's a, there's a way that the relationship, the, the relationship between the, the students and the pupils and the, and the, the way that cliques form uh, into armies and, and, and all that sort of stuff really, it, it had a, I, I felt like I understood what was going on despite the fact that real, <laughs> real you know public school and and military school are radically different experiences as far as i understand <laughs> sure. having never been to military school right like i don't uh i don't have that experience but there he was able to give you both kind of the feeling of being just a child in school but also within this highly regimented military life and i it, it, it he does build it very slowly, which is, I think, what allows you to buy it. But I'm, I'm realizing how, even just talking about it, how weird and incompatible that could have been. Battle school? Yeah. Like with, the, with how we view the real world and looking at it like, that's, that's impossible how that works. But he manages to sell it to us? Yeah. Yeah, and he does really well sell it to you. And I, mm -hmm. uh, the whole zero gravity battling and stuff like that is really is sold really, really well. And like... I always loved reading it uh, from the perspective of someone who's like a, a director or leading a group of people. And like reading Ender's Game always reminds me of like what my life is like sometimes when I'm directing a show and like trying to control a tune and whatever, you know, like like almost thinking of it in those terms sometimes. That, that, that's funny. It had never, ever crossed my mind to think of it in that manner. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I remember uh, reading it when I was at improv camp one year. <laughs> And I had this ensemble of kids that I was teaching and they were kids. And I was like, man, and I was like, well, how do I? And I had to like, you know, I used my learnings from Ender's Game to get them to bond and become so a really great group. You isolated one of them, <laughs> no. made them, made them feel like they were the worst. I, and, uh... I did not isolate one of them. 
Uh, and I won't talk about that. You know, that's that's you know that's inappropriate for me to talk about. Like you know of other course. other students' lives at camp. But I remember being told by one of my superiors that I had to do something different, and I said no to them because it was gonna trust me. This was gonna work, and then it totally worked. <laughs> yeah, I felt a little like Ender in that moment. It, it's funny because I think uh, about my experiences in teaching and uh, both both improv and and university stuff, and. I don't take the the lessons of battle school to heart in in kind of my approach, or at least not directly. Yeah, and I know teaching is different. I think, uh, but directing a, a group or yeah. uh, or something like that, I, I think it it does. Uh, like all you have to do to earn their respect is be the best. Like that's a that's a lesson I have taken to heart. Hmm. You know, if you want to have people follow you into uh, to doing a show or something like that, you got to be the best, and they'll just follow you. You don't even have to force them. In, until you get to the Ender's Shadow series, in which case he's, he's not the best and, and they follow him anyway. Our <laughs> uh, Ender's Shadow series. Uh, okay. <laughs> we, we hate that book more than that series more than we should. Yeah, I know. It's a fine series. It's fine. It's fine. It's just not as good. You know, the other thing we didn't talk much about that I wanted to talk about was how well, uh, maybe we did talk about this. You, you tell me uh, how well Orson Scott Card writes families. We we talked about it a little bit, um, but we didn't uh, we didn't talk about how well he writes them. We talked about the parallel stuff. So you go ahead. Because he, he is it's like his greatest gift as a writer, I think, uh, is that he can write those family dynamics and have the different relationships between each of the characters in each family be really well defined. And you can see how that's a real family, like just looking at Valentine, Peter and Ender and their parents. Uh, when they're sitting around the dinner table and like, you know, like the first or second chapter, uh, or maybe it's way later actually, but, but like, um, and like, you know, Valentine comes in and she's like, Oh, I can't go to school today. I know I'm not feeling well. And Peter's like, what is it? And he's in and she sticks her tongue out at him. Uh, and like they have this little playful banter and then father says there's a military man at the door and everyone looks at Ender and like all that sort of stuff. And Ender's not eating and mom's like eat. And he like shows her his wrist, like, you know, use an IV, like all this kind of his relationship with his mother versus his fear of Peter and his love of Valentine and Valentine's like, you know, teasing of Peter, like all of that sort of stuff uh, is so well written. And then when you see it in speaker for the dead as well, like it's the relationship between Ella and Miro and Quora and Grego and Quim and how they yell at each other and Ohato as well. And how like he's removed, but, like, ah, it's awesome. it's awesome. And I think uh, a lot of that has to do with an underlying assumption in Orson Scott Card's work, and that's that children are people too. And and so a lot of the family stuff that we, when when we deal with families in lots of fiction, but also science fiction, um, it the the children are kids. Yeah. And and they don't they don't have their their own ideas, or they're they're very much meant to be the stereotypes. And what we see with Orson Scott Card is his willingness to put adult jokes and adult thoughts into children's minds because they have them. Yeah. For start, and and that's not even the, whether or not the the kids are super geniuses. That's, I mean, I think anyone who's ever interacted with kids has has been amazed uh, at you know a moment of uh, interesting philosophy from a child or a particularly profound statement. Or a joke that is unexpectedly funny coming from the mouth of a four-year-old. And, and so what he's willing to do is say, I'm just going to write, write about people and their interactions with each other. 
and some of those people are going to be six years old, and some of them are going to be 30, and there's nothing weird about those interactions. Yeah, that people are people. Yeah, and he, and uh, and so he gives these... So just by treating them like real people, it makes that their relationships with other people vary depending on who it's with. Like seeing how Ella and Miro talk to each other versus how Ella talks to Quora versus how Quim talks to Ella versus Quim talking to Miro. Like those, they talk to each other all very differently because you can see that, you know, Quim doesn't have as much respect for Ella. She's, she's okay yelling at him, but he'll be quiet when Miro's there and et cetera, et cetera. You know, like you see the power dynamics and the, the shifting of statuses and all that within the family scenes. And it's just, it's, it's a, uh, he doesn't, uh, I guess like cheat, you know, and make it like, oh yeah, yeah, Greg and Quora, they're just kids. And the kids just sat there being kids. He doesn't cheat like that. Each character has a, a reaction to each other character. And I think part of that also is that um, his characters are all flawed. Like there's, they're, they're, they all have cracks and, uh, and, and most of the time they're wearing a facade that, that attempts to hide those cracks, but isn't particularly good at it. Like, yeah. Even uh, Ender's parents, who are basically lip service characters in the book, um, you know, they, they have their own relationship to each other that is that is made more difficult by their own religions and yeah. and their their bap- the baptism of Ender is a point of contention for them mm-hmm. and not just a plot point for Ender. And and he's he really I mean, human beings and and I say this in the four orders of foreignness foreignness sense is like his human beings have character yes and awesome yeah no that, that yeah, i see what you mean yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful okay well we've done another hour on ender's game just about that's insane <laughs> uh for this special edition part two of the ender's series um podcast well, I hope uh, hope those of you who enjoyed the Ender series enjoyed tuning in to this bonus bonus episode. Yeah, the the shadow episode. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I just called it that. That's the. <laughs> uh, that is the title of the episode. Yeah. The shadow episode. Yeah. Next, we'll have to do uh, the episode again from a different perspective, where all of our points look like they were made by somebody else. Um. <laughs> um cool uh so uh yeah thanks for taking more time to talk about enderman because i think last time we did a, we we talked a lot and we we missed a few major things and i'm glad we got to talk about them in more depth yeah yeah and i think we could probably talk about this some more but we're not going to we're gonna we're gonna call this a week and uh <laughs> we'll move and on probably probably move on to uh something else next week <laughs> probably hopefully <laughs> fingers well, crossed you know, fingers maybe crossed. maybe we can talk a little more about ender I, I won't be here next week then. Okay. I'll, uh, well, uh, it'll just be you by yourself. Let's say this planet has been blown up by the little doctor. All right, man. Uh, so I will talk to you uh, next week. Talk to you next week. Love you, man.